Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, since the 1890s, over 200,000 Puerto Ricans have served in the U.S. Armed Forces. But despite active and long-term service during the last century, Puerto Rican servicemen and women are practically invisible in U.S. military history. Their contributions have not been forgotten in Boston, however, home of the country's only monument to Puerto Rican veterans. Later in the show, miso cheesecake and wines, red, white, pink, and orange. You know, red wine is red grapes fermented with their skins. White wine is white grapes not fermented with their skins. Orange wine is white grapes fermented with their skins. White grapes made almost as if they were red wine. Our food and wine gurus are here to give us a taste of the yummiest trends kicking off the summer. But first, joining me in the studio, Harry Frankie, Associate Professor of History at Bloomfield College. He is also the author of Soldiers of the Nation, Military Service and Modern Puerto Rico, 1868 to 1952. He also served in the U.S. military for 12 years. Welcome, Harry. Hello, Kelly. Also with me, Antonio Molina, president of the Puerto Rican Veterans Monument Square Association. He is also a Purple Heart Vietnam veteran. Welcome, Antonio. Hi. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> Glad to have you. And joining us from NEPR in Springfield, Massachusetts, Sergeant Gumer Sindo Gomez, Executive Director of the Bilingual Veterans Outreach Centers of Massachusetts. He also served in the United States Army for 20 years. Hello, Sergeant Gomez. Hi, Kelly. So glad to have all of you. I'm going to start with you, uh, Professor Frankie, uh, because my understanding was that proportionate to their numbers, or maybe disproportionate to their numbers, Puerto Ricans have always been overrepresented in um, the military. And so it's kind of shocking that people don't know about their presence the whole time. I think you're right, especially since um, after World War II, Puerto Ricans uh, have been disproportionately represented in the military mm -hmm. to the point that to this day they're um, twice as likely to be in the military than any uh, than the general population of the United States. And you're uh, correct for um, the most part. Uh, the contribution of the Puerto Ricans uh, to the defense of this country, uh, uh, the participation in the armed forces, have been uh, mostly ignored. So why is that? Um, you've written a book about this going back, but, you know, how, how can a group of people with so much presence um, really just be forgotten? Well, it's known in Puerto Rico, it's just not, not that... I mean, more broadly. Well, Puerto Rico, yeah, but yes, broadly. Yes, um, yes, yeah. I, I think it has to do with the many misconceptions about Puerto Rico. Is it a country? Is it a state? What is it? Is it part of the United States? Where is it? Is it an island surrounded by water? Yeah. Um, and who are the Puerto Ricans? And I think it has to do with that, um, uh, the history of Puerto Rico not really being included in how we teach history uh, stateside. Um, and it also has to do with the veterans being really humble. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Um, we're going to come back to some humble veterans that finally got their due a little bit later. But I'm turning over to you, um, Tony Molino, because we have in Boston, thanks to you and others, the only monument dedicated to Puerto Rican vets. How did it come to be? Well, you know, that's something that uh, is like uh, uh, Harry said, you know, is the misconception about Puerto Ricans being in the armed forces. And uh, I served for four years in the Marine Corps. I was actually the first Puerto Rican wounded in Vietnam. A sniper shot me in the head. And when I came uh, to Boston, I grew up in Connecticut, but when I came to Boston, and people looked at me and the way we got treated, you know, and I said, wow, you know, not only because I was Puerto Rican, because I was a Vietnam veteran, but then in 1998, UMass, uh, Jaime Rodriguez, <coughs> who used to work for UMass, invited me to go to Washington to deal with the 65th Infantry Regiment of Puerto Rico. We went to Washington and we listened to a lot of people make a lot of comments about Puerto Ricans and about the 65th Infantry Regiment and about our contribution to this country. When I came home to Boston, I said, you know, we need to be respected, we need to be recognized. So we started working on a, a plaque dedicated to the 65th Infantry Regiment. It was the first plaque in the United States dedicated to the 65th, in the South End, across from the Holy Cross Cathedral. And then we decided that, wait a minute, you know, it's not only the 65th, there are other men and women who have served the country from Puerto Rico. So we built a monument with a female and a male. Mm. It's the only one, it, it, uh, people say that's uh, respecting, I say, yeah, you have to respect females because they do the same thing we do nowadays in the, in the, in the armed forces. So in and you did this monument a long time ago, so you were future thinking. Yes, yes, most definitely. Yes, uh, we unveiled that in 2013, but we started in 2006 working on that monument. And uh, thank God, and thank thanks to a lot of uh, you know support that we got from everyone, including our mayors here, uh, Mayor Menino, Mayor Marty Walsh, we got the money to build the monument. And um, to be very clear, the 65th Infantry Regiment is the only regiment, that actually the only two Latinos who have the Congressional Gold Medal, the 65th Infantry Regiment and Roberto Clemente. Mm. People did, never realized, and I was talking to Harry about mm. that, that Roberto Clemente was a veteran. He spent eight years in the Marine Corps. I did not know that he's a Baseball player. Uh, the best the best in the world, <laughs> okay. but, uh, but he's a veteran I'm a, also. <laughs> I'm not a sports person. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. so I want to be clear. Okay. No, but he, he yeah. was a veteran, so we decided yeah. to do a bust for Roberto Clemente. Mm. And because uh, he has, again, uh, you know, he is the other congressional gold medal recipient. There's wow. only two, the two Latinos, and they're both Puerto wow. Ricans. So we decided to do that, and uh, in last year also, we started doing history, thanks to people like mm. Harry here. Mm. And we realized that uh, per capita, Puerto Ricans have more Purple Hearts than any other state. Wow. So we decided to do a plaque for Purple Heart recipients. So now we have there a 65th Infantry Regiment, a uh, bust for Roberto Clemente, the, 60th, uh, the uh, Purple Heart recipients, and the monument. And uh, last year also, we uh, did a, a new, I'll show it to you, mm -hmm. It's well, called, we'll put it on. We'll take a picture of it. Yeah, yes, yes. It's uh -huh. called the Puerto Rican mm -hmm. Veterans mm -hmm. Monument Plaza. Well, and that's it's huge. It's right across from the Holy Cross Cathedral. So we're blessed. Yes. We're blessed in more ways than one. 
Um, that's my guest, uh, Tony Molino. He's president of the Puerto Rican Veterans Monument Square Association. I want to note that he, too, is a Purple Heart Vietnam veteran. So just yes. he's mentioning how many there are, but he's one of them. Thank um, you. Moving over to you, Sergeant Gomez. Uh, you are certainly have an honored um, military history, and your whole family, by the way, um, has served. So first, tell us a little bit about your family in the service, and then we're going to move on to uh, come back to some of the issues here at the table. Uh, well, this year, the April and May this year, the AARP magazine uh, somehow found my family, uh, and they did an interview of us in October or last year. Uh, here, we depicted five generations of Puerto Rican veterans serving the United States military, starting with my father in World War II, myself in Vietnam, uh, in Vietnam my brother in Vietnam, uh, my son in Iraq, my wife, who's also served, to include my grandson, which is in uniform right now. Uh, so we got a few years uh, defending our country. So you're um, the living embodiment of what um, Professor Frankie was talking about, which is the numbers uh, understanding how many people have served and yet, you know, not necessarily people understanding, being aware in your own family, five generations of people. Amen. Who served. Yes. Let, me, let, me, let me share with you some numbers here, uh, starting with World War I. Uh, 18,000 of them went uh, to Europe. Uh, World War II, 65,000 served. Vietnam, and, and these numbers are only uh, people from Puerto Rico. That don't count the people who had joint services here in the continental United States. Mm -hmm. Vietnam, we have 48,000. Uh, the Korean War, 61,000. The Gulf War, 10,000. Uh, deployment in OIF and OEF, 38,000. Over 25,000 are in active uh, services at present. And in the reserve, we do have 5,000 in National Guard, 8,400 uh, individuals. Again, this is individuals from the island. It's not talking about individuals like myself who joined, and, and of course, Tony, who also joined over here mm -hmm. in the United States. So the numbers are huge. Yeah, they really are. For that little island, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. we yeah. can produce. <laughs> Um, one of the things that um, when um, uh, that continues to be because we just, as we're talking about not and by the way that's my guest Sergeant Gomez executive director of the bilingual Veterans Outreach Centers of Massachusetts. Um, I wonder if because uh, Puerto Ricans are not are put in the category of Latinos, which they are, um, that sometimes this gets ignored because there was a huge controversy in 2007 when Ken Burns' documentary came out about the war. And there was no mention of so many people, but particularly Latinos said, wait a minute, you know, we have served and we have served well. So I wanted to just play a clip from a William Lansford, who is a Latino Marine, who was recounting his motivations in that documentary because Ken Burns, the documentarian, ended up adding the contributions to his documentary after much conversation about it. So here is uh, William Lansford talking about his motivation for joining the war effort. The Latinos have a culture just as the Japanese had, you know, the, their own form of Bushido code, which is not as extreme, but certainly is, is just as firm in their nature. 
And that's that they want to prove that they're up to whatever job is given to them. And they want to show that they're as patriotic as anybody, as some blue-eyed blonde guy. So, um, Professor Frankie, we know that certainly with African Americans, there's always been that, well, will they really fight? Are they really courageous enough to go? And there, there's always a, been a knocking down of that myth. Um, so I know that that's been part of this conversation. Uh, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. The African American community uh, very early on took uh, the stand in World War I of um, uh, fighting our country first, then our rights. And uh, a way to actually acquire a degree of equality, something very similar uh, happened in Puerto Rico, in which um, the local elites and politicians they urge um, uh, the peasantry and the um, working uh, class to join the effort, which they were uh, doing uh, anyways. And it was a way um, to prove that they were men, and it, they could prove that they were men, not boys, then they deserve uh, rights to self-government autonomy. We're going to see more of that in World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that I uh, that I have come to understand that is that Puerto Rican would always uh, kind of like step behind the African-American community <laughs> and kind of following uh, their tune. And mm-hmm. also, uh, it's also compounded by the Mexican-American experience mm-hmm. who were much more organized. And after World War II, uh, they really fight for their rights um, to get... Um, uh, GIB rights, which was really hard for African American World War II veterans to get. Yes. And in Puerto Rico, we see something different. Uh, World War II, um, uh, under the future governor, uh, first elected governor of Puerto Rico, Munoz Marin, he understood that what had happened in 1944 with the GI Bill could transform the island. So um, the soldiers who returned from World War II and Korea are immediately um, remobilized to build a modern Puerto Rico by using the GI Bill. And at a certain point, over 97% of Puerto Rican veterans from World War II and Korea are making use of the GI Bill to study, uh, to become professionals, and to become the pool of the know-how to build modern Puerto Rico because they have been mobilized Mm -hmm. by the Puerto Rican state. And that was huge. And this military service... And I don't want to take away from the tradition of service that all these uh, um, courageous men um, like uh, Tony and Gumersin don't have, right? Many of them, they joined because they wanted to serve. Right. It was their yeah. thing. They joined to um, to end the war, uh, to, um, to fight in the war, to uh, end all wars, to safeguard democracy for many reasons. And even if they became part of larger projects, uh, they mostly did it on their own. That's right. That's my guest, uh, Harry Frankie. He's Associate Professor of History at Bloomfield College, and he's also the author of Soldiers of the Nation, Military Service, and Modern Puerto Rico. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Harry Frankie, as I said, uh, Tony Molino of the Puerto Rican Veterans Monument Square Association, and Sergeant Gomez of the Bilingual Outreach Centers of Massachusetts. And in honor of Memorial Day, we're talking about the contributions of Puerto Ricans in the U.S. Armed Forces. Now, I'm guessing there's some of my listeners going, 65th Regiment, what are y'all talking about? You have not explained who these people are and what's going on, because it's a big deal, and I wanted to make sure we we talked about it well. So um, all three of you have at one point been either writing about or supporting or in the movement. Uh, Sergeant Gomez, you told me you were very early on in the movement for getting the 65th uh, Regiment recognized. So tell us who they were. 
Well, I, uh, I am the founding member of the movement, which we started in 1994, and then a whole bunch of us gathered together around the movement. Now, the, 65th, the 65th uh, was a group of Puerto Ricans that got assembled together in 1908 in Puerto Rico uh, to guard uh, the coast of Puerto Rico. Uh, when the United States uh, took over the island in 1898. From there, uh, they became a militia of Puerto Rico, and once Puerto Rico uh, became a territory of the United States uh, and citizenship was granted to us in uh, 1917, a whole bunch of those people got drafted to go into uh, World War One, mainly the 65th was used to guard the coast of Puerto Rico and the Panama Canal. But yet came World War Two, and this uh, unit of Puerto Ricans, unique, I should say, uh, because they became part of the United States Army in 1921, and that's when they became the 65th Infantry Regiment. They were sent to World War II, and as a matter of fact, uh, the first individual to die of the 65th uh, was an individual, Angel G. Martinez, Sergeant Angel G. Martinez, out of my hometown. Hmm. And my godfather and my father, both of them served in the 65th, even though my father did not go to Korea, but he, as a National Guard member, he was part of that 65th. So as a young toddler, I saw them in uniform. This really enticed me uh, in the military later on as I uh, became an adult, and I joined. I, didn't, I was not drafted. I joined the military based uh, on that experience, seeing them. I wanted to, to wear that uniform, to be part of. Mm. And, 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 and then right away, I volunteered to go to Vietnam because I already had and in, my brother in Vietnam, but I wanted to be there too and participate. Yes. So the so they were inspirational. They were inspirational. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. Mm-hmm. So the 65th was a, a unit, and I'm reading now the second book of the 65th, Fidelity, and, and seeing uh, how these Puerto Ricans with very, very little language skills, uh, very little winter equipment and skills uh, surpass uh, many of the other uh, U.S. units uh, like the 15th Infantry Regiment, the 7th Infantry uh, Division, and a, a whole bunch of units that were around them, they surpassed them even though they did not know how to speak the language. Yes. But I'll tell you what, mm. they knew how to shoot, and they had what we call and I'm not going to say that. Yeah, please don't. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I know where you're going. Uh, I just hold on one second, Sergeant Gomez. So we got the point. They're very inspirational, and they're they are their story has finally uh, come uh, to the forefront because of the work of you, uh, of, of folks like you, certainly Tony, and certainly uh, Professor Frankie. Um, before Professor Frankie weighs in, uh, I, I just wanted to play a clip from the trailer of a 2007 documentary film called. Um, the Borink, the Borink, Borinkaners, Borinkaners, which is the reference to the region, uh, to the uh, regiment, and this, and it's uh, by filmmaker Naomi Figueroa Sule. I feel like it would be my obligation too to fight for the country, 
even if I'm Puerto Rico, you know, I'm American too. I just wanted to put that in there because that was a motivation for the folks who uh, decided to sign up. And of course, there was some controversy, uh, Professor Frankie, and it took a lot of effort from all of you all to get them recognized. But they finally did get recognized. But what what was the deal? Um, well, before I say that, I would like to point out mm-hmm. that uh, one of the things about the 65th that make them special, I would say, is that the, uh, they were the only Hispanic segregated unit in the U.S. military. We're not talking National Guard or Reserve. This was a standing unit of the United States Army, and it was um, the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, what It reminded me a little bit of the Tuskegee Airmen, I have to say. Yes, you know, the African-American troops only, yeah. That, and they had to fight for recognition, too. Exactly, yeah. and yes. that was one mm-hmm. of the arguments uh, <laughs> made uh, to get them the congressional uh um, uh, the Congressional Gold Medal with the Tuskegee Airmen mm-hmm. also uh, received for their mm-hmm. uh, efforts. Well, it took a lot of um, convincing. Um, I started to notice that there was uh, support from left and right, which was um, from blue and red. Uh, I saw um, people that would not talk to each other normally getting behind this project. And when... Um, the medal was finally um, unveiled. It was uh, in Congress. Uh, it was a, a majestic moment. They ha- uh, they brought uh, the band of the United States Army to um, sing in Mi Viejo San Juan, which is kind of like um, an anthem for an official anthem for Puerto Ricans. And everyone got up and sang mm-hmm. along. And you could tell uh, the members of Congress present they. They were emotional. They were emotional, and they uh, were really impressed with this solidarity. And I was looking across the room because I was attending to interview some of the veterans and um, to film. And um, I I could tell that they were so impressed by it and that the people who were getting along that day, they were Puerto Rican from all walks of life, from uh, the most strikingly different political points of view, and that day they were all Puerto Ricans. Let me play the clip from the White House ceremony. This is President Obama honoring the 65th Infantry Regiment with the Congressional Gold Medal in 2014. So this is a proud uh, day for the uh, Borinquenias and their families. Uh, It's a proud day for all those whose lives they saved and whose freedom they defended. It's a proud day for all Americans. Uh, especially Hispanic Americans who made extraordinary contributions to our country, uh, many through their military service. So uh, on behalf of uh, the American people, uh, we want to thank uh, all the Boricaneers and for their ex- extraordinary service. You've earned a hallowed place in our history. That was really, um, it, it was, we're going to post the video because just to see the older gentlemen who were there who were finally getting their recognition, Tony, um, th- that must be something you see when people come to the monument every year and just give respect. Oh, most definitely, uh-huh. Kelly. Uh, and I think that uh, it's not only the respect, but the appreciation that people have now that they know about a little history about the 65th and others who joined the forces. And I just want to make a point here, uh, an interesting point, is that a lot of people who have, who were in the 65th were not volunteers. They were drafted. Mm. You know, a lot of Puerto Ricans were drafted to serve the armed forces. And one of my concerns is, and I grew up, again, I grew up in the country, but it's fine, but one of my concerns is that 
We serve the country. We've served to maintain democracy. But we can't vote for the president of the United States if you're in Puerto Rico. That's right. So it's interesting that uh, we can fight for the country, but we don't have that that right to say who we want to be or who wants our, our commander-in-chief to be. But at some point, uh, that, that will be taken care of. But I think that uh, one of the things about the 65th, and people don't know, and I as a Marine, I know this, they saved in Korea, they saved the Marine Corps' rear end, as mm-hmm. if we can say that, <laughs> yeah. because it was a, a 65th Infantry Regiment that was there to while the Marines were be, back were back and back, you know, backing out. And it hadn't been for the uh, hadn't it been for the 65th, we would have been wiped out. Wow! And people don't realize, you know, a lot of the you know, patriotic things that go on, and that's. Sometime, sometime we're having a, an event Monday actually at the monument uh, from twelve noon to three o'clock. We're going to have an event there, and uh, we have uh, we have a little surprise for people. Okay, we have a little surprise. <laughs> uh, but I think I can mention. I can okay. mention because I I spoke to the mayor's office and they said <laughs> the uh, alleyway behind the monument it's going to be dedicated to the sixty fifth infantry regiment. Yep. I love breaking and, news. <laughs> yes, and it's going to be unveiled by uh, Marty Walsh and the others who are going to be there. Uh, again, we're going to be making full history. circle. Yes, wow. Yes, we're going to wow. be doing all that. So you know, I mm. want to invite everyone to join us on Monday mm. from twelve to three. Um, so that really says something, um, Professor Frankie, that we have come full circle to the point where these people got their recognition, and now looking forward or looking currently, do you, do you think, and I guess this is a question for all of you, that there is a better appreciation and understanding of the contributions of Puerto Ricans and and where can we go from there? I think that uh, it has been changing, especially in the last 20 years, um, um, to be honest. Um, I, I grew up in Puerto Rico and I, and I drove on the 65th Infantry Road. I saw the document and I had no idea what they were and it wasn't until I was about to leave Puerto Rico and 1999, uh, 98, that uh, someone gave me a newspaper, the only newspaper in English in Puerto Rico, in which they were talking about this uh, woman, Naomi uh, Figueroa Sulet, who was interested in the Borinqueneers, and I'm leaving Puerto Rico and to go to grad school and study military history, and I'm like, I'm going to find out who they, who they are. And next thing I know, there's um, all kinds of people working on different projects, and it's, uh, all of it is flourishing now. And I think that uh, there is a better understanding. Uh, there is more interesting. It should be, uh, that should be the case because Puerto Rico has never stopped ser- uh, serving. If anything, they continue to serve in always and ever-increasing numbers. They're pillars of the community. That is something that I found out here in, in Boston when I came to interview some of these veterans. And um, I think that it had changed and that another way of honoring these Puerto Rican veterans is to understand who they are and what they do mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the community. Because besides the monument that they're talking about, they engage with the community at all levels. levels. They mm-hmm. come back, and this is what I found in interview with veterans, Puerto Rican veterans from all wars. They come back, and they feel that they have, they have something to pay back to the community. While the community look at them like, our heroes, our brothers, our parents are returning and they Mm -hmm. come back and they Mm -hmm. got this need that they need to make something for the community. And I think that is something unique that needs to be recognized beyond the battlefield. Mm 
Well, I think that's uh, excellent, um, particularly on something you want to hear, Sergeant Gomez, because um, in Springfield, I mean, you have worked with a number of Puerto Rican veterans to set up these bilingual outreach centers, and now there's a number of them. So you've come back, and you all haven't done exactly what Professor Frankie said, engaged in giving back to make certain that not only the veterans could be serviced, but really the rest of the community. Well, I, I, I do more than that because I am a national figure in the Veterans Department. I sit at the National Board of Vietnam Veterans of America, and my responsibility as the nation uh, chair for minority veterans of Vietnam is Puerto Rico. I have Puerto Rico under uh, over my shoulders, and I have to take care of their issues uh, with VVA, in Puerto Rico. As a matter of fact, I just got back from Washington, D.C. yesterday where we had a meeting to something that was going to happen, and finally it happened where $1.4 billion was awarded to Puerto Rico for the damages of the hurricane. Right. And I'm just looking forward for some of those monies to come to us veterans so we can develop an economic development in Puerto Rico for our veterans mm-hmm. and get them moving. Also, I would like to add that here in Springfield, I have named, we have named uh, Main Street the 65th Infantry Way. Oh, wow. I did not know that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, we got it here in Springfield. As Tony is working over there, I'm over here lit in another fire. So <laughs> we <laughs> we are together on the movement. We believe in what we do. But yet when Maria did happen and a positive thing of all the negative that happened uh, to Puerto Rico is that this nation and the world understood that Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States and that we are citizens. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, with this happening, uh, the people in the nation will view us in a different uh, perspective, a different way to understand that we are here, we belong here, and we will continue to fight for all glory. Okay. Tony, are things getting better? You know, it's good to have this history recognized. Uh, so many people were inspired, as all of you have said, by the 65th. But um, is there a better awareness and understanding now? Oh, most definitely, Kelly. And I think one of the one of the things that we appreciate is when people see us, like if I wear my hat and they come and say, thank you for your service. And it's great because, you know, we're being, re- again, like Gomez-Sindo like says, we're being recognized. And I think, yes, we're doing much better than we did 20 years ago, but we still need a long way to go. So people recognize that Puerto Ricans are American citizens, that we have given our blood for the country, and that uh, when we joined the, the Armed Force, you know, I was, I was a volunteer also in the Marine Corps. When we joined, we didn't join because we wanted to uh, uh, fill our pockets of money or something, but we wanted to defend the country. And we definitely, and I, I say to folks when they say, thank you for your service, and I tell them, proud to have served, we'll do it again if we have to. And, yeah, things are getting much better. People are being, uh, you know, we're being recognized. The monument there, you know, now within, in, uh, in, in Springfield, the 65th Infantry Regiment Boulevard in Boston now. In Connecticut, they did this in Bridgeport uh, about five years ago also. So, yes, across the nation, they're finally recognizing that Puerto Ricans as American citizens, you know, should be recognized and honored for the service that we, we've provided, definitely. All right. Uh, Professor Frankie, do you have a last word on you know what you want people to think about with regard to Puerto Ricans' contribution to military to the military veterans uh, on this Memorial Day? Well, um, 
I would like uh, to link this uh, to the present. Um, something that is happening in Puerto Rico is that to this day, a majority of Puerto Rican service members and veterans, um, they come from the island, from the archipelago of Puerto Rico. But due to uh, the many crises in Puerto Rico and now Mar Maria, uh, what is happening is that um, Puerto Rican veterans who will love to return to the island, they're unable to return to mm. their own home. And I think that it, that is uh, the gravest injustice. Puerto Rican should be able to live whatever they want to live in the United States. But imagine if a veteran from Texas, after serving his country, cannot return because of the economic crisis and the uh, post-hurricane situation. So I would like to um, uh, people to think about this. What is going on in Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican veterans in great, great numbers are not being able to return to the land. And I think that is a grave injustice. Well, I think that's uh, an important thing to think about as we uh, contemplate honoring the contributions of Puerto Rican vets, um, both who came from here and from there, and, and what we can do as we look forward. So I thank all of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Harry Frankie is Associate Professor of History at Bloomfield College and the author of Soldiers of the Nation, Military Service and Modern Puerto Rico, 1868 to 1952. The professor is a veteran himself, having served for 12 years in the U.S. military. Antonio Molino, Tony, president of the Greater Boston-based Puerto Rican Veterans Monument Square Association. He is a Purple Heart veteran of the Vietnam War. And Sergeant Gumer Sindo Gomez, executive director of the Bilingual Veterans Outreach Centers of Massachusetts. Sergeant Gomez also served in the United States Army for 20 years. Coming up, it's the best problem to have for rosé lovers like me. An oversupply of rosé is flooding the market, just in time for refreshing summer sipping. And miso is having a moment. Our food and wine experts return to give us the lowdown on the tasty trends of summer. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Miso Nutella soft serve is the coolest scoop being served up in Boston this summer. And hot words over a cool cocktail, the Aperol Spritz under fire. For many, it's still rosé all day, but orange is the new pink. Wine lovers' newest obsession is orange wine. Our food and wine connoisseurs are back to tell us about the tastiest trends for summer. Joining me in the studio, Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Welcome back, Amy. Thanks. <laughs> and also with me, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's devotional. Hello again, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. I'm glad to see both of you. Um, let's uh, start with the miso craze uh, <laughs> because I just see it in my soup, right? I mean, I just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. So yeah. I feel like this is uh, the third iteration of the savory sweet uh, trend. So first of all, we were sprinkling sea salt on everything, salted caramel, and then it was tahini everything, yeah. tahini brownies, tahini cake, tahini da-da-da. Now, miso is that savory element, so it's fermented soybean paste. It's a, it's kind of salty and nutty, and I'm seeing it popping up in more desserts. Um, 
Uni is serving a miso cheesecake espuma, which is like a foam uh, with berries. Toscanini has done a Nutella miso ice cream. And, you know, it works because it's it's like tahini. It's that nutty note and a little bit of, of salt, which plays off the sweet and kind of enhances all the flavors together. So I, I love it. I oh, love it okay. as a trend. Because I yeah. was wondering, does it taste good? Yeah, yeah it okay. really does. It okay. really does. It's, okay. it's a subtle nuttiness and a nice saltiness to, to balance everything out. And while you're talking about... Um, um, Oni, that he won the James Beard Award. Yeah, yeah. he did. Tony yeah. Messina. Yeah. He's the winner this year for Best best Chef Northeast. So that's super exciting. His his turn was definitely due. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So that's good. So, you know, because we've been getting dissed here in Boston for a while for I the know. restaurant. So this but, is a new thing. And it's a good thing because also Karen Akunowitz's, uh Fox in the Night. Which is so good. Which is so good. <laughs> just Food and Wine just named it Best New Restaurant of the Year. One of the Among the Best New Restaurants of the Year. Wow. And that's a national recognition. So we needed that. Yeah. I went with some of my girlfriends and we were just <laughs> <laughs> if I can give so the official good. review. Yeah, the official... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> oh Jonathan, okay. Over uh, to you. What you got in these glasses for us? Uh, well I'd like to describe these wines with a modern interpretive dance. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now one of the um uh, one of the big trends and one of the big topics um, in the wine world now is this thing called orange wine. Yes. And essentially Essentially, what it is, you know, red wine is 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 red grapes fermented with their skins. White wine is white grapes not fermented with their skins. Orange wine is white grapes fermented with their skins. White grapes made almost as if they were red wine. Um, uh, and so I brought a couple of different examples. The okay. the uh, the first uh, wine uh, the light, here, the, the yeah, light the one. lighter the lighter colored one. This is not a true orange wine. Yeah, it looks like this is a wine from Georgia, mm. and it's a grape called Arcazzatelli. Georgia and the country. Yeah, Georgia, not Georgia. Georgia Atlanta. the Georgia the country. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get to that in a second. Yeah. Oh. Um, okay. And if you taste it, oh. it, it 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 has a lot of skin contact. Mm-hmm. And, I love it. And mm-hmm. is really not like a fruity, juicy, um, stereotypic white wine. Um, it's got more of almost like an earthiness, almost yeah. like a texture like red wine. And that's the uh, presence of the white wine hmm. skins. Hmm. But there's it's like very, a, there's a yeah. grapefruit zest kind yes. of thing happening that I love. It's- it's yeah. Not, yeah, it's not, and it's not that Chardonnay I can't stand. But, well, you know, well, sorry. right, because because there's not much fruit. I yeah. mean, it's more what you're saying. It's yeah. more. I mean, it's the grape peel. It's the grapefruit zest. Mm-hmm. It's the, you know almost pith, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like the the, the bitter. A little pith. bitter. This is a great summer wine Part for sure. It. Great yeah. summer wine. Yeah. Um, and I brought another kind of mind blowing example. This is um, an American grape Ooh. called Muscadine. <laughs> yeah. And this is uh, grown by a, a, co- a colleague it's of strong. mine. <laughs> a, yes. colleague, a colleague of mine. His name is Shannon Mercer, mm-hmm. um, and this he uh, grows these grapes and makes this wine in Lexington, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Oh. And he does exactly the same thing. These are white grapes. You see how dark the oh, wine yeah. is. He really ferments the skins, ages it for a long time, and um, it's not sherry. Technically, but it's it has, has that the feel. Nose of a yeah, fortified right. Yeah. This, this, it's yeah. not, it's not yeah. fortified, but it's got that kind of aging, yeah. and it's got that kind of whiskey, wow, tone to yes. it. So this is another thing that orange wine is good for to give white wine. You know, white wine 
Mm. I mean, we love it because mm. it's light and mm. pointless and shallow and vapid and one-dimensional. <laughs> that's that's what we love about that's what we love about white wine. But <clears throat> when you make orange wine, that's a way to use white grapes and get a lot more oomph out of it. If you're a sherry fan. Yeah, this, this is good. this yeah. is right for um, and it's not heavy. This is it's right, not heavy at all. Right, yeah, think, yeah, yeah. It, exactly. Because it, again, because it's not sherry, yeah. and um, uh, Mercer Mercer House Estate, uh, Lex, Lexington Lexington, South Carolina. And I know so you. I, I know you'll put this uh, the information up about yes. uh, on our website. But go ahead. No, I was just gonna say if I was a restaurant owner and I couldn't afford the ridiculous Boston four hundred thousand dollar full liquor license, which oh, is what yeah, it costs. Yeah. Yeah. I would and oh, but I could afford the hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollar wine and, and yeah. you know, wine license and beer. I would sell this and call it wine whiskey. And then it would right? look like I had a, a whiskey That's true. program. Right? You would. Right? Well, you would. And it's funny you mention that because you know you know um um port tonic um, it's a it's a mixed drink that you make in the summer with white oh, port yeah. and tonic okay. yeah. and oh, lime. Yes, yes. You can also use um, tawny port or, uh, or you know, a, a darker red port. Uh, but we use this. Mm. You know, we use this and we make like a port tonic. Nice. Uh, oh, this uh, is very nice. Like a, yeah. It's like a sherry tonic in some ways. You know, a lot, a, a whole bunch of lime, a whole bunch of tonic water. You know, some some big hipster ice cubes. Um, and because this is kind of like a faux sherry a little bit, you mm-hmm. can also um, drink it with some of those problematic salads that, you know, you can't ever match yes. wines with, you yes. know, but this would yes. be yeah. very good Absolutely. with it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So. And most <laughs> band, and, I'd call and, it problematic it, salad. But I like the problem. <laughs> it's a salad I like, but wine. you just can't match it with anything. Yeah, yeah. Wine, this, would be, this would be great with a wine-hostile salad. <laughs> Y'all know what I meant. <laughs> All right, moving on, talking about uh, controversies. Um, Aperol Spritz. So, first of all, I didn't realize that uh, hashtag Spritz Life is even a thing, but it is. Yeah. Uh, Amy. <laughs> and so, so and yeah. people are mad about yeah. it. And, and Jonathan, I'm nosing it on your territory. No, so, no, no you should jump in. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, this is... I, you know, 2018 was uh, 10,000 articles with the headline... Aperol spritz, the only spritz worth spritzing. <laughs> and, now, and, and now, now we're being and now, Aperol and, and shamed. And now, and now it's like Aperol spritz is crap. It's yeah, like, yeah what, that's what, right. So what, re- what, what, what happened? Yeah. This past month, Rebecca Pepler wrote an article in the New York Times slamming the Aperol spritz. <laughs> and she said it's because Aperol is a lousy a drink. It's, it's a lousy mixer. Mm-hmm. She said it drinks like a Capri Sun after a soccer practice on a hot day and not in a good way. <laughs> so so now everybody's going to feel ashamed about ordering that chic little drink they were drinking last year. So I just want to throw out, if you're having that anxiety, go for the Lillet Spritz, which yes. Lillet is, I actually adore it, and it comes in white, red, and rosé forms, and it's a, it's a wine that's um, kind of is it fortified? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a little bit fortified and it's um, infused with all infused. kinds of herbal fruit and all of these are a little bitter, Spark. so that's yes. why you pair it with other yes. stuff. Right? It has a wonderfully yeah. floral quality, at right. least the white, the lilay yeah. lilay blanc, and so you can mix it with either two one part lilay to two parts tonic or two parts soda if you want to go really light. And it's a lovely summer. Do a little like just a little twist, like a little orange twist in the glass. It's a really nice summer drink. Very I'm, sophisticated. I'm, I'm doing the twist right now. You can't see that. <laughs> it's very um, sophisticated. But I just want to point out that this um, other person, wh- whose name is not mentioned in this article, but wrote a piece 
Um, back to Rebecca Pepler saying, if Aperol spritz is bad, I don't want to be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Aperol, I mean, Aperol technically is sort of a poor man's Campari. Yes. Right. right? So, so, so there's that attitude. There's this attitude that Prosecco is the poor man's champagne. Yeah. And that somehow you're going to Im- improve this by using Campari and super expensive champagne or, or you know, a more expensive liqueur and a more expensive... Lillet is not more expensive. No, yeah. it's really than, affordable. Than That's a nice thing Aperol, about it. But, yeah. Well, um, this author says Aperol spirits is so yeah. bad it's good. Yeah. She said it tastes like a children's vitamin and looks yeah. like a Mediterranean sunset. So yeah. I'm, I'm all for it. I <laughs> eat my kids' vi- Flintstones. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, moving on. All right. All right. Let's try this birch. Um, you're telling me yeah. birch is everywhere okay, as a so flavor. Birch is a hot flavor. So we all know that in New England we love our maple syrup, but birch trees make sap too. Ooh. And you can cook it down Ooh, this is good. and make something like a maple syrup. This is mm. from um, the Birch Syrup Company in Glover, mm. Vermont, which is pretty far north. And they, I bought this at the Vermont Cheesemakers oh, Festival. Yeah. You can't see it, but it comes in a little, really cute little little mm, bottle little wrapped in bottle. birch bark. Mm. Yeah, and mm. and so it has like a slight, it has a, a that mm-hmm. thick, yeah. sweet, unctuous thing, but it's mm-hmm. also got a little bit of almost like a a winter green flavor, a little a little bit of that little herbaceous black, black strap. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little, the, yeah. I'm licking the spoon mm. for all who mm. care to know. This and would then, be very great. good. This, this would be great over like just even. Whatever sweet yeah. cream ice cream. That's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. Or like, over um, strawberries. We yeah, strawberries. Into strawberry. instead of balsamic yeah. vinegar, yeah. Yeah. do the birch syrup. Really, really good. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you those of us of a certain age um, may remember birch beer from childhood. It it, it was a popular soda at a, mm. for a while, and there's still a few people, a few small soda producers in New England making it. Um, AJ Stevens Birch Beer in Fall River won a taste off on Serious Eats. And Squam Scott's Soda, which is a family-owned soda maker in Newfields, New Hampshire, huh. they also make a really nice birch beer. So oh, you can find it there. And also, it's um, I've seen it in some desserts. Renee Connolly at Benedetto in Cambridge mm. is doing a birch-flavored sabayon, like I a custard. Yeah, yes. I bet that's really good. Yeah, so look oh. for that. Yes, oh, the I'm answer gonna... is yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> a thousand times. Um, Jonathan, um, rosé is an oversupply. <laughs> now we've been talking about it, and it's not can never be enough for me, so I'm fine. But 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 it's now we have too much. Will the yeah. <laughs> will the rosé bubble? Thanks a lot, Cal. <laughs> Sorry. Will the rosé bubble ever burst? No. I mean, it shows absolutely no signs. I mean, it shows absolutely no signs of slowing down. I mean, last year, nine million bottles of cheap Spanish rosé mm. were counterfeited as cheap. Southern French rosé. Oh, I mean, I mean that's a sign that you've arrived. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean it's just it's it's an utter uh, phenomenon. There was a there was um, uh, the American Association of Wine Economists the other day came out with some statistics. So so the rosé market in the U.S. is about two hundred and fifty eight million dollars a year, okay. a quarter of a billion dollars. You know what that's equal to? What hard seltzer. Wow. wow, interesting. So the rosé market in the USA equals the hard Zuma, seltzer. Zima. Wow. I, I, you know, and hard seltzer is a thing that did not even exist five years yeah. ago. Wow. So, so. so even though we see this and we experience this explosion in the rosé thing, um, uh, there's still a, a, t- a ton. I mean, there's still a ton of... Um, 
well, of head of headroom, I think. I'm going to tell you, like uh, everybody in the newsroom said when we mentioned this was a story, they said, not if I'm around, there won't, <laughs> won't be an oversupply. So just letting you know. <laughs> um, so, Jonathan, staying with you for a second. And, yes. uh, the Trader Joe's has a podcast, <laughs> and they talk about all kinds of things that are in the store. That's the whole business with it. They promote it. But they often wander into the wine arena because they sell wine. First, let's take a listen from the Trader Joe's podcast. We uh, came up with these various tiers for the reserve program. The entry point is the petite reserve, and the petite refers to the price. It's a small price, um, under $10, for what we think are are wonderful wines. Okay, so they're just making up stuff as they go along. (laughs) Yes, they... they, uh, they have, if you listen to the entire the entire podcast, they have a very frank conversation about their, you know, Trader Joe's proprietary line of wines. And at one point they talk about, well, we have the Petite Reserve, we have the Grand Reserve, we have the Extra Super Duper Intermediate Extreme Plus Cubic Zirconium Reserve. You know, we have all these different reserves. And one of the guys said, well, where did, how did you come up with this? And the other guy essentially says, just made it up. We just put it up <laughs> the wine words we in a generator. It. And... It's, yeah, the, it's petite reserve. The petite refers to the price. And then there's the grand reserve. Um, the grand reserves, re, the grand refers to, you know, the deception. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. And these are, and, and the larger issue here, and it's, it is super easy to mock Trader Joe's. Yes. They, 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 may, they sometimes make it too easy. I know. Um, <clears throat> but the, the larger issue here is, you know, this question of authenticity in wine, this question of, of, of what people expect from a wine. You know, the Europeans are super hung up on this. Everything's about where it's from and, what, right. and what it is. But, yes. you know, you're looking at, like, you know, B, BJ's uh, label wines, Trader Joe custom label wines, Home Depot will surely have its own line of custom label <laughs> wines. And where, Next where to the what, what are these wines and where are they coming from? Are they coming... Are these wines out of some kind of like bulk wine puppy mill someplace? Yes. What? Yes. Yes. What is it? And, and, you know, do people care? Is it important? Should it matter? And, um, I think it's a that's bulk the large, wine thing. That's the larger issue. They, because they were the, the sellers of uh, Two Buck Chuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and that definitely came from the overrun somewhere of, you know, wherever Chuck was. And, and you know, we knew that was happening. But but they were, you know, honest about this is where it comes from now. This, this only annoys me because then it confuses people. I don't mind them selling their brand, but just say... Right. But follow sort of the conventions of other wine, but in, and and just have your right. label on it. Right. I, don't, and, I don't know why they. Well, and, and the weirdest thing, of course, is that the co- the coastal reserve, you know, starts it's at from like four ninety. Well, well, some some somebody's been or to the, somebody's been it. to the coast and has a coaster. <laughs> under okay, it. okay. So, you know, so that's like you know five ninety nine, and then the super extra reserve is, you know, twelve ninety nine. You know, we're not uh, talking about like from five dollars a bottle up to a hundred. Right. We're talking about Real tight distinctions that maybe, All right. maybe well, don't. Well, good for Trader Joe's. They know how to sell this <laughs> stuff, I'll tell you. They're, they're very effective. Mm-hmm. And All they're right. secretive. I mean, I remember being, I won't say the name, but I was at a, a bakery, a commercial bakery here in Boston that produces stuff under the Trader Joe's label. We were taking a tour, and they, I was taking some pictures, and they're like, oh, please 
don't take a picture over there. That's where we produce the Trader Joe's products, and we can't let right. anybody know that we make them. You know, mm. they're, wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're they're really mm. secretive. Mm. Well, that should be a call in to the podcast. Um, meanwhile, Amy, <laughs> there is a Boston Japanese restaurant explosion, which I guess I was beginning to see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, we've always had Japanese yeah. restaurants, but just the the different types of restaurants that you know, from izakaya to yakitori to sushi to fine dining, is is just. It, it continues to explode. And, um, I, you know, we just spoke about how Tony Messina at Uni just won the Beard Award, so that's a feather in our Japanese restaurant cap. Um, a couple new ones are coming, a yakitori restaurant called Torijiro at the Arsenal Yards, and that is the first American outpost of a Japanese chain. And that is wow. happening, like, there's Gensuen in Brookline, mm-hmm. which is also the first American. I'm starting to feel like Boston is like a tryout town for European and right. Japanese chains. Well, the hot pot, the new hot pot place in Coolidge Corner, yes. is part is, oh, wow. is part of a, a, a an Asian chain. And mm. I, I would like a, to in investigate more why Boston is considered a, a sort of safe. Uh, town to try a new concept in the U.S. Because mm. these are all international companies, kind of like we used to be the tryout town for right. Broadway. We're mm-hmm. now the tryout town for international right. restaurant concepts. There's another one from mm. London, but it's a Japanese ch- uh, restaurant. It's called mm. Zuma. It's coming into the Four Seasons Hotel. The one I'm most excited about, though, is called The Groove, and it's it's in an existing... It's at... Um, uh, Hijoko in mm. at the Beat right. Hotel in the Fenway, which uh, Tim and Nancy Cushman operate, and it's fabulous. But uh, in Tokyo, there's a big trend for these record bars. They're kind of oh. where the bartender acts as DJ and bartender, oh. and they're they're spinning vinyl. And so, being well aware of that trend, the the first uh, record bar is now coming to. Uh, Hajoko. The the, vi- the the vintage audio vinyl thing is so incredibly hot. Yes. In San Francisco, every bar has a a tube amp and a turntable yep. and you Isn't know gi- gi- giant you know giant speakers that have been transported in time back from the sixties. Yeah, well, yeah. It's it's, it's like hanging out in somebody's living room and they're playing good tunes yeah. and you get right. a drink and I like it. What do you all think about the fact that uh, back to the Boston testing thing that at, you know not too long ago w- there was nothing to eat in Boston. You mm-hmm. know, people thought this was a place where mm-hmm. you know the good taste glob. came to die. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so now we're at the point where people are coming to bring things they want to right. test right. to see if it would will go other places. Yeah. I think that's it's yeah. great. Kind of a huge yeah. turnaround. We have money and a little bit, and we travel right. and we're curious and we're open. Which and we'll are try not, it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I think from the, the from the Asian cuisine perspective, we have uh, big Asian in terms of the education component. Um, Asian, Asian students. Oh, oh, so we have a, we have a yeah, we have right. a big Asian. Po- I mean, we're I mean we have a population we're able to do like wine one hundred and one in Mandarin. Oh wow! So we have, wow. you know, so there's enough of a po- there's enough of a population and people interested in food and wine that we can, that we can do that and that. So I see that as maybe part of this too. Yeah, and right. one other import I'd just mm. love to recommend: Taiyaki ice cream. Yeah, that's what I was looking oh, at. Oh my god! It's, I, I went in New York, and I'm so thrilled they have one. It's they're, they're doing Japanese soft serve and really great flavors. Mm. You know, yuzu, oh, mi, uh, miso, mm. uh, green tea, red bean, and the, and they serve them these. These fish-shaped, these sweet um, waffle cones, except they're shaped like fish. They're really oh, beautiful. Yeah. Oh. oh, it's so, so good. Yeah, And that'll fit right in because we're ice cream crazy yeah. here in, in uh, the Boston area. So uh, last question to the two of you, just have seconds to go. What are you drinking and eating Memorial Day? I am headed down to the Cape. Yes. 
Um, this is not fine dining, but for me, summer begins when I get my first slice of Spiritus Pizza in Provincetown. <laughs> I adore Spiritus Pizza. Okay. And then last night, I drank a wine, um, and it was really blew my mind. It's from Oyster River Wine Growers. It's a Gewürztraminer with skin mm. contact. Mm. It, they're in Maine. Wow. It's a Maine-produced wine, awesome. and it's called uh, Enological All-Stars. I had it Ooh. at Natalie Wine Bar and loved it, so I want to be drinking more it. of that. Yeah. I love that the name. Is that, that's yeah. that's going to be up on the website. Yeah. Yes, okay. please okay, put yeah, it up there. Okay. Is it expensive? <clears throat> no. Well, it's, it's, about, it's about in the restaurant. I think it was like a $62 Two dollar yeah, bottle wine, means right. which means it's yeah, yeah. It's so, like eight, so like eight ninety nine. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, dude. Yes, we want to put that up on the website. And yeah. I love the name, if nothing else. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, what are you eating and drinking? Uh, I will be um, celebrating Memorial Day in uh, Pittsburgh with my family. Mm -hmm. um, I will be having French fries on top of my salad. <laughs> in 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 the pit in the in the Pittsburgh way, um, and I think I'm just good. I think I'm going to be probably consuming uh, twice my body weight in uh, rosé. Oh, see nice. this weekend. This is this is this is the beginning of summer. And um, uh, favorite one? Do you have a favorite? We, do I have a favorite one? Um, you know, my favorite one. Susanna Balbo makes mm. a rosé of Malbec. Mm. So from Argentina, Ooh. very dark. Uh, very dark. Also, can I mention real quick? June thirteen, Boston talks. We're doing rosé all day. Oh, in the um, uh, right here, um, at, right here, right here at GBH, right yes. here in the yes. uh, um, in the atrium. That's right. Um, WGBH.org, go to events, and you can buy tickets. Yes. Uh, use pro promo code JONATHAN to get your ticket for free. <laughs> you sound oh, like a podcast. Wow. The, only, the, only, yeah. the, only, the only trick is you have to spell it right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but well, yeah, I'm going I'm well, to be stoking. I'm going to be contributing and stoking that mania is going to be all right. what I'm going to be doing. All right, well, put that name of, of your favorite wine uh, on for our website as well. Uh, in the meantime, I enjoy both of you so much, and I'm so glad to see you, and I look forward to our next gathering. Always Me great. Too. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Good to see you. Amy Traverso is the food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of the Apple Lover's Cookbook. And Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Thank you.